Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. A couple things. One thing is how influential the um, the time of the beats were to the pop art scene. Mm-hmm. And secondly, what I didn't realize, um, shit, I've forgotten the second thing. <laughs> um, okay, so. Oh, okay. Uh, let me redo that because I should yeah. say the second thing first. Okay. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Elliot. And Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today we talk about the emergence of the pop art scene. When the beats began to fade and consumerism took center stage. The cultural chaos of the 1960s was brewing. An illustrator turned gadabout Andy Warhol found himself in the right place at the right time. So grab your cheap, fizzy, or fuzzy, whatever, and join us as we pop back into the bar. was wondering here we are back in the bar mm-hmm. and uh, you see that i've gotten it all decorated with uh campbell soup brillo pads mm-hmm. you know nice kind of lots of signs lots of logos everywhere there's these tinfoil pillows that kind of look like clouds floating around yep 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 i'm gonna start spray painting everything silver here because i think we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, the pop art scene today. Mm, I love this. Okay, this is such a fun time. It is. And you know what's funny? Like, I want to... Let me give a little plug to our previous series on the Beats real quick. So there's two things that I didn't realize about the Beats. Your unfolding of that story really helped me to understand, Elliot, that uh, the Beats were not what we think. No. Uh, the mass media portrayed them as something completely different. And I had uh, an idea, probably like everybody did, that they were goofy layabouts, um, eggheads. Yeah, yeah. Maynard G. Krebs, right? Like what we talked about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, that's not true. They were certainly intellectuals and um, certainly into mind expanding in lots of different ways. Um, But that was a real eye-opening thing for me. The next thing that I realized was just how influential the beats were and their time period was to the emerging pop art scene too Mm -hmm. because they seem so radically different don't they yeah and i would say the other pieces uh just like pop art built on they were aware of this post-world war ii consumerism like we talked about and they were really um sort of alarmed by that yeah and so if they were alarmed by that I would say the founders that would eventually become the pop art movement were excited by that and they were intrigued in so much that the other, the predominant 
art movement of the time of the 50s, as you know, with the Beats was abstract expressionism. Yep, yep. You talk pretty extensively about Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning and um, how they were they were getting more cerebral with uh, the marks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to talk about how all that kind of got kicked into what will become pop art. But let me start by asking you a question. Okay. When do you think is the golden age of advertising? Oh, wow. Well, I think... The, According to most, you know, critics. Yeah, say that. yeah. The era that was profiled in Mad Men, right? Yep, yep. The Doyle, Dane, Birnbach, the Lemon, Volkswagen ads, like that That whole time. You know, there's such a yep. mythology built up around that. Yeah, perfect. That's square in the time frame that we're going to start talking about today. Let me ask you another question. What do you think is the most recognized... Uh, mascot. We we did an episode about our favorite ad mascots. <laughs> yes. But, but but I don't think we talked about the most recognizable one. What do you think is the most recognizable ad mascot? Oh man, there's so many. That's such a difficult question. I mean, we talked about, of course, Ready Kilowatt and Big Boy, um, but I don't yeah. think it's either of them. I mean, part no. of me leans towards something like Green Giant or maybe Snap, Crackle, and Pop or <laughs> one of these, Ronald McDonald, perhaps. I don't know. There you go. You nailed it there. Okay. Ronald okay. McDonald, yeah. Um, second most recognized icon in the world behind Santa Claus um, mm. is Ronald McDonald, who um, was also invented around this same time, this sort of peak of consumerism. Sure. And... So we're going to talk about how that all formed, and this whole series is going to center around one guy, Andy Warhol. You've heard of him, right? I thought you were going to say Willard Scott, since he was the first Ronald McDonald. We should. We should. We should. And, um, yeah, he was, and um, he went on to do a couple things as well. He was first bozo as well. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Maybe he was the first bozo. No, he was the first Ronald McDonald, too. Man. In the the D.C. area. He he had a a wide... (laughs) Wide repertoire, I guess. The man has a resume, doesn't he? Does, he does, he does. I'm jealous. So, you know, there's a lot of we know about Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's never been another artist documented as much. Or self-documented. He did oh, a lot Oh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah. Just self-recorded everything. From the factory to the disco, he made himself the hub of the pop art scene in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to kind of get to how we are understanding how Andy became Andy, we have to kind of look at the foundation uh, that would eventually be the marriage of art imitating reality, imitating art. Um, (laughs) And so we're going to talk a little bit about how the 50s influenced this. And this was uh, this was sort of wrapping up the era of the beats. Right. Mm -hmm. When uh, we were talking about that. Um, as they were coming to a close, this was the first generation that wasn't a depression generation. Babies were booming. Elvis was booming. Suburbs were booming. Consumerism was booming. And TV was booming. Uh, the percentage of homes with TVs went from 9% in 1950 to almost 90% in 1960. Holy cow. So within a yeah. decade, it multiplied mm-hmm. by 10? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, check this out. I realized that TV, uh, you know, obviously I'm not telling anybody anything new. TV is a, is a massive advertising medium. I've heard that. 
Think about it like this, though. TV is the very first media that was developed specifically for advertising. Right. Magazines existed beforehand. Radio. Right. Radio was was like a public service, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, TV, you know, early TV, of course, was kind of radio with pictures. Right, 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 right. So TV, obviously, was invented in the 40s and, and got caught on pretty strongly in the 50s. And it was... Obviously, a dominant advertising medium, and uh, as you would expect, we got to fill it up with stuff, don't we? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so it was that combined with the idea of the war's over. Uh, again, mm-hmm. this was really the first generation coming into their own spending. Um, so they weren't the first generation beyond the Depression, I should say. Mm-hmm. They weren't handcuffed by you know, war, uh, rations Mm -hmm. and TV was a big, powerful tool. I would add one more thing as well. And it kind of goes back to the research during the beats. Um, you know, the country was very insular during this period as well. Right. So TV as a result of that was sort of this form of escape. There wasn't CNN or something where there was this 24-hour news cycle. So you certainly had the evening news or you're listening to the news on the radio, but I would say it was a lot more uh, Texaco Star Theater and and all these sorts of things as opposed to a lot of what we think of TV being like today. Yeah, movies in your house, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. You didn't have to leave. The top 10 TV shows, now this was interesting because I started thinking like, well, you know, really... We talk about decades, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, but the 1950s didn't end uh, in 1959. You know, they kind of continued on culturally for a few years. Yep. The top TV shows in 1960, see if you can catch a pattern here, Elliot. Uh, Number one, (laughs) Gunsmoke. Uh Number two, Wagon Train. Number three. Hold on. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, slow down. (laughs) Number three, Have Gun, Will Travel. Isn't that a Fox show? (laughs) Fox News. Um, Oh, sorry. We should take that out. (laughs) (laughs) We should. Number four, The Andy Griffith Show. Number five, Real McCoys. Rawhide. Candid Camera. The Untouchables, tied with The Price is Right. I would love to see those two shows overlap, actually. <laughs> and rounding out the top ten are The Jack Benny Show and Dennis to Menace. But what do you notice about, say, the top six TV shows of 1960, Elliot? Yeah, I mean, Western, Western, Westerns. I mean, just cowboys. And rural stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So this reminds me of, again, back when I was doing some of the some of the pop culture research during this period. And there, there's what was called the rural revolution in the 60s. Yeah. And then it later went on in the 70s to become the rural <laughs> purge where they got <laughs> rid of all of these shows. So just a little nugget here, which I think is pretty great. CBS wanted to be known as the Tiffany Network, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And they, during this time, became known as the Country Broadcasting Network. <laughs> <laughs> and one executive said, I love this quote, quote, ratings indicate the American public prefer hillbillies, cowboys, and spies, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I just, like, that mix is just so amazing. I just want one show that's hillbillies, That's what I was going to say. Why didn't someone invent a hillbilly spy? Like, like Beverly Western. Hillbilly Mission Impossible <laughs> yeah. set in the Old West. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Oh, Maxwell Smart. Uh, what was the show? God, George drew a blank. Yeah, Get Smart. Yeah, Get Smart, uh, starring Jethro Bodine. <laughs> with a banjo intro yeah so in the early to mid 60s that's when tv went from representing black and white situations we all had a lot of familiarity with like our family life i love lucy and leave it to beaver shows about the old west things that were had happened or we were very familiar with and in the early 60s TV started becoming more imaginative and fantastic, like the Beverly Hillbillies, so to speak, um, because mm-hmm. even though that was a rural show, it was based on an absurd idea, of course. Mm-hmm. My favorite Martian, big TV show, Bewitched, The Munsters, Gilligan's Island, I Dream a Genie, uh, and, you know, one of my favorites of all time, Batman, premiered in 1966. Oh, love Batman. I would say of all those shows, wouldn't you say Gilligan's Island is probably the most rural? <laughs> I think it would be, yeah. I think I think you nailed that one. But early in the 60s, it was these familiar things, and then TV became pretty untethered. It became more fantastic, more colorful, if you will. What do you attribute that to? I think it was the times they were a-changing. Okay. I think that people were looking for... Um, I don't want to use the phrase mind expansion because that might allude to drugs, but mm-hmm. I think people were like, we've seen theater plays on our little TV box now for a decade. We want to see something different. Yeah, we know the good guy. We know the guy with the white hat is going to win yeah. in the end. And color, too. You know, color became more widespread mm-hmm. at that time. But mm-hmm. So we already talked about this, but as... As TV grew, you had to have sponsors. So sponsors became more and more a part of our day-to-day experience. So soap operas were also ramping up. And with the proliferation of TVs, daytime TV dramas and game shows, were like a walk down your supermarket aisle, man. Yeah, because they were called soap operas because they were literally sponsored by soap companies. Right. And they started on the radio. So by the time they migrated to TV... People were already familiar with the plot lines and the characters. So there was this, it was very safe for television because it was a built-in audience, especially for a station like CBS that also owned the radio station it had been on previously. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it just was a natural extension of that. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about popular music in 1960. There was a guy named Elvis Presley. You've probably heard of him. I I have once or twice. Yeah, he was still in the Army, but he reached number one with It's Now or Never, Stuck on You, and Are You Lonesome Tonight, just in one year. Uh, Wow. But, you know, you would think, like, he sort of was the big hit of 1960, but no, it was, I think, one of your favorite songs, Theme from a Summer Place by Percy Faith. Oh, you know what, Todd, whenever I want to get in... Shall we say the right mood? Yeah, uh, okay. That's, I uh, add a little atmosphere. Uh, that's a song I love to play because, of course, it's from the uh, <laughs> the romance scene in uh, Animal House. <laughs> and that's what you think of. Okay. It's <laughs> always what I think Okay, of. well, good, good. Uh, uh, that's, there's a mental picture there that I won't be able to get out of my head, but that's good. <laughs> no, yeah, sorry, listeners. <laughs> uh, and, of course, in just a few years in 1964, the whole world would obviously change forever and music would become like TV, more untethered. Okay, got it. Just real quick, let's hit on some movies of the time just to give a sense of what it was like, and then we'll talk about the art world. Go for it. 
big movies. Things were epic at this time. Spartacus, Swiss Family Robinson, Exodus, The Apartment, Psycho. And they were bringing families in, man, to the theater. Uh, I once had a psycho living with me in my apartment. <laughs> I didn't realize they made a movie about that, but they were. <laughs> that's good. Oh, man. That's more of a true crime oh, yeah. situation. Uh, so movies also started to become a little bit more fantastic as well as epic into the 60s with Mary Poppins, Goldfinger, The Pink Panther, one of our favorites, as you know. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and then a, there were still obviously massive epic movies around that time too, Cleopatra, Sound of Music. But let's talk about the art world here. And this podcast, we bounce around the edges of, of art because Elliot and I are commercial creatives. We love and appreciate all of the creative arts, especially the fine arts. So forgive us if we might get a little long-winded on something like this because if it wasn't for pop art, we may not have our careers the way we have now. And, and I also think, though, uh, the fact that I talked you out of that extensive Truvian throat singing episode is probably <laughs> a good idea. All right, so that was kind of, you know, pop world of the 60s. But let's take a look at the art world. In the episodes, the whole series around the beats, you talked about... Uh, some of the friends of the literary giants, you talked about Willem de Kooning, Mark Rothko, Jackson Pollock. Mm-hmm. They represented abstract expressionism from the late 40s on through the 50s. And that was the dominant avant-garde, long-hair art movement of these philosophical brainiacs. No? Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. You say long hair. I happen yeah. to have it on good authority Pollock was bald. Well, okay. okay, he was one. Okay, that's okay, one. yeah, I can't, I can't speak to everybody. But in all seriousness, abstract expressionism, like we talked about during our beat series, was very, very personal to the creator. So it was loose, it was painterly, it was conceptual, you know, stream of consciousness yeah, yeah, yeah. and very symbolic, right? So yeah. it really was the thinking person's art. To you know, you say philosophical brainiac. I'm I'm a little mm-hmm. less lofty, perhaps, in my language. <laughs> I had a thesaurus handy. Oh, good for you. Good for you. I'm glad you found it. I'm glad you were able to pull it out from under the short table leg in your kitchen for a change. Um, So it's the thinking person's art. It has a massive hold on the highbrow art world. So, you know, you and I love both highbrow, lowbrow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It it was trying to make these existential feelings from post-World War II uh, visible and tangible, right? So it started for the right reasons. Challenge the conventional. Expand our thinking. And this idea of conceptualization and and questioning what should art be? How does it relate to life? I mean, we just got done with a global war, right? So by the late 50s, getting into the the early 60s, this era that we're now talking about, the bourgeois conceit was, eh, you know, maybe wearing a little bit thin for a lot of folks. Or just maybe it wasn't as relatable as creativity should be. Something fun like I Dream of Genie. Well, yeah. And, you know... To every uh, action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And without the bougie abstract expressionism, there would be no pop art. Mm. And pop art actually began in the UK, but it uh, really uh, hit its stride in the US, late 50s, 1960s, to kind of push that uh, art pendulum in the other direction. So what was gone were those uber personal brushstrokes you just talked about and the tortured abstract artiste. And it was replaced with uh, hard-edged 
art that took inspiration from advertising, celebrity culture, mass consumerism, and mechanical processes. Hey, hold on. Don't be beating up on the beats. Anyway, I bet they irritated the bourgeoisie, right? Well, they eventually, not yet, oh, because okay. the pop art scene really wasn't a scene yet. And the artists didn't even know of one another. And that's the odd thing. That's why I started by telling us about kind of what the, the vibe was culturally, because it kind of came together quickly in the U.S., but there really wasn't one thing that started it. And it was a bunch of unknown creatives in Greenwich Village who were tired of the seriousness of the, the capital A abstract expressionism art. Okay. So as the scene was forming, there was a building that played an important role in growing the audience and being the spiritual home to this group that would become pop artists. Uh, do you, what do you think it is, Elliot? I bet it's not what you think. You mean it's not the Bronx Zoo? No, it's not the Bronx Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, cross that one off my list. <laughs> um, it's not the factory yet either. It's Judson Memorial Church. Um, uh, okay. Right across from Washington Square, uh, which describes itself as the spiritual force in Greenwich Village for over 120 years. And I'm doing an ad for Judson Memorial Church, Apparently, by the way. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You new sponsor so, yeah, Judson Memorial Church. Hey, that wouldn't be a bad one. No, that'd be great. It's... It's literally nestled right there among NYU in the heart of Greenwich Village. Hmm. Okay. So maybe William Burroughs visited on his way to, you know, one of his many jaunts there in the village. I don't know if other guys in the Beats, uh, that scene ventured from the Upper West Side to the village for a church service or something. Yeah, maybe not. Um, like I said, it's right there at Washington Square. And this is a fun fact. It's literally one block from the famous Blue Note Jazz Club. So cultural bookends right there in one block. <laughs> All right. So it looks like they likely walked past it. Yeah. 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 Okay. I know this is an episode about the emergence of pop art, but let's talk about church for a second, Elliot. Okay. Listeners, pause it here. Come back on Sunday and listen to the rest <laughs> yeah. of the episode. Finish listening to the Reverend Todd and Elliot. <laughs> um, Judson Memorial's mission was devoted to social outreach. So there may not have been a pop art movement without this. They were also helping those perceived to be in need despite being controversial or sometimes unpopular. And the church started uh, in the 1950s as the first institution to create, for one thing, a counseling program for drug addicts, which I'm sure some of our beat friends might have taken yes. part of that. Yes. They established programs for runaway teens, women engaged in prostitution, medical resources for people with AIDS uh, later on. So definitely controversial outreach. Okay. Well, if they were that, uh, the word I'll use, I suppose, is liberal with all of these mm -hmm. other things. My guess is they could also, the people who chose to make their art there, it could be done in a safe space without the fear of censorship, right? Because we're talking yep. about the 50s, so the height of the yep. Red Scare, and all of these other censorship issues we had talked about in our Beat series. 100% right. The church made space available to performers and artists for exhibitions, rehearsals, performances. It was a safe place where uh, they were free from censorship to experiment with their work. Okay, this is great. Yeah. I know you love a scene, you love I do. New York and everything, but why are we talking so much about this church? Okay, okay, oh yeah, yeah. So let me, let me start, let me tie this in a little bit. 
1957, the church offered gallery space to some unknown artists. A couple three you may have heard of, may not have heard of. Okay. Um, Klaus Oldenburg. Uh-huh. Robert Rauschenberg. Love him. Yeah, and uh, Jim Dine. Oh, yeah, fellow Bobcat. Okay, sure, I've heard of hey, these guys. Yeah, nice. Yeah. yeah, Ohio University, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Todd, speaking of friends getting together for a little bit of fun, um, I'm slowly having less fun now that I see that my glass is empty. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I know I know that cue. I've seen it before. <laughs> the glint in my eye. <laughs> yes. Why don't we take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor. And every week, I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Hi. We want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, two designers walk into a bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And, if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff, and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website, or send an email to hello at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. We read every message we get. Honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now, back to the bar. Welcome back to the bar, everybody. So, so far, in talking about an episode of Pop Art, we've talked about Westerns, uh-huh. um, church, <laughs> the rural purge. Yep. Um, but yeah, it all equals Pop Art, eventually. Okay, I, I want to I start to see how these pieces all tie together, because I'm still a little bit lost. Okay, okay. Um, let's talk for just a second about something that was important to these artists of the time. You've heard of the expression happenings, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, You know, in fact, I'd say the debut of Howell at the Sixth Gallery in San Francisco was a sort of happening. I think that's a cornerstone of some of the epic moments in beat culture. Yeah. 
so these guys that we were just talking about, Odenberg, um, et cetera, they were creating these happenings to, to that was really meant to be a, a lighthearted break from the heavy abstract expressionist. They were doing fringe performance, um, things that sort of seemingly didn't fit together. Mm-hmm. And unknowingly, they sort of ignited this form of, of pop art, uh, which wouldn't have a name by then. Um, but there's no... I would say, it, from what you're saying, they're kind of like living in the moment versus like trying yeah, to build yes. any kind of movement. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, they were basically, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that uh, an art historian had told me this, but they were basically making fun and mocking the abstract expressionists, the serious you know, of that by, you know, like drinking soup, you know, while dancing like a chicken or whatever they were doing. <laughs> so they were sort of the Weird Al Yankovics of their time. Of course, see? Totally misunderstood. Exactly. So, I talked about those three guys, and they were unknowns. So, do you want to know a little bit about how they all got started to, yeah, to yeah. know each other? Yeah, loop me into this, because I'm still I'm still trying to figure out the center of gravity here. Because it's not... Okay. There, there are things it's not going really on. one yet. So, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah there isn't a true, what I would call a true scene, based on how we describe no, it. Absolutely not. That's what makes this kind of fascinating, is... These people were doing day jobs, basically, mm-hmm. and they were all influenced by similar things, the commercialism, stuff like that. So, for instance, Klaus Oldenburg, he was uh, about 32 years old. He was a one-time journalist, mm. and uh, you can tell because he declared in his manifesto, <clears throat> I am, I'm going to quote, uh, do you want me doing a German accent? Was he German or Swiss? I, I, Dutch? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. We'll have to that. We'll have to get a crack research team on that. Just use the the accent that serves you best. Okay, good. Uh, here we are. I am for an art that is political or logical. Uh, let me do that one again. I'll take two. Okay. Okay. I am for an art that is political, erotical, mystical, that does something other than sit on its ass in the museum. Hey. You know what? Hold on a second. I've been known to sit on my ass in museums, but I'm thinking when I'm doing that. Yeah, but you're not a piece of art either, so. Wow. No. (laughs) At the same time, so the scene was Greenwich Village. They just didn't know it yet. Okay. Down in lower Manhattan, there was a guy a little bit younger, 27-year-old. He painted Times Square billboards, you know, like. 100 feet in the air, 50 feet in the air. Yeah, yeah, well before large format outputs. Oh, like yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. A guy named James Rosenquist. And he was painting, as you would <laughs> back then, super close. His day job was to sit or stand a foot away from a giant 50-foot-tall Coke bottle and Crest toothpaste. <laughs> so, you know, to him, that was like, us oh, it's a natural place to start, I guess. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's like, here I am staring at the bottom of a Coke bottle, you know, uh, 50 feet in the air. So <laughs> I think I'll take that as inspiration. Yeah, I'll just paint the cap today. <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah. Okay. Last one um, I'm going to talk about for this setup was a, uh, a painting professor. Um, he was in the suburbs of New Jersey, 37-year-old frustrated painting professor, Roy Lichtenstein, who I think was also from Ohio, right? Uh, yeah, Ohio State grad. Uncle Roy, uh, he lived yeah. in Cleveland for a while as well, I think. A good guy then. 
good. Yeah. What, probably, probably one of the better guys to come out of Ohio, I would say, wouldn't you? Probably. Well, he got out. He and I, that's, yeah. that's, and that's where our similarities end. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so he was also, he started playing with abstraction and layering in hidden images of comic books and cartoon characters, Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny, and it hit him to just make a painting that looked like a comic book one day. Incidentally, here's how it hit him. I read this anecdote. His very first painting to incorporate the large-scale bende dots, you know, like halftone dots to our listeners um, that were, were used for printing techniques. That's what he would come to be known as that. Sure. But this came from a challenge from one of his young sons who pointed to a Mickey Mouse comic book one day and said, I bet you can't paint as good as that, eh, Dad? <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. So his kids dare launched his art career. Yeah, yeah. And I want to I want to give a shout out to a really good book called The Lives of Great 20th Century Artists by Edward Lucy Smith uh, that has that quote in there. It has uh, actually some interesting anecdotes for uh, on a lot of 20th century artists. Cool. I'll tell you what. Let's put a link to that on the episode page. Good deal. Good deal. Um, a writer once asked Lichtenstein why he had started painting comic book characters, and he said, desperation. Uh, he, said, he, he couldn't see how he fit in any differently in the world of abstract expressionism. So he was like... Yeah, I mean, I guess when everything is so, like, formless and yeah. just out there, it's, it's hard to find a, a niche when there's, you know, it's a blob. <laughs> yeah, and check, check out this backhanded compliment. On another occasion, he said, it was hard to get a painting that was despicable enough so that no one would hang it. It was almost acceptable to hang a dripping paint rag. The one thing everyone hated was commercial art. Apparently, they didn't hate it that enough, though. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Commercial art, quote-unquote, right? The notion of selling out. So this will be something we revisit later on. Just a little drop a pin in this, listeners. Yes, it will. So if you're keeping score, the scene is forming. These, all these people have day jobs. They're unknown, but they're starting to be influenced by a bunch of... Uh, commercialism and mechanical processes. Um, now, we've left out a pretty main guy that everyone knows that eventually became this scene. You, you think about who I'm talking about, Elliot? Mm, I don't think my memory's so good I can remember that far back. Okay, Andrew Warhola? Maybe? Oh, yeah, 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 him, yeah. So Andy Warhol was, who was then uh, Andy Warhola, he was an illustrator. Um, in the 1950s, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on, how that influenced him. Well, we talked about it a little bit, if you recall, because he helped out with a bunch of uh, jazz album covers, right? Oh, right, 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 right. And I didn't realize all that he did do, as a matter of fact, so um, I dug into that a little bit more. But what was interesting, as this scene was kind of forming, he was and he was not part of the scene, Uh he was, Andy Andy was an odd misfit toy, you know? Mm, uh, mm. I think everybody knows that. <laughs> that that's not a newsflash. Um, and of the misfit toys, he was the misfittest of all the toys. <laughs> um, oh he goodness. had this crippling anxiety, and mm. he had this major inferiority complex, but he wanted to be famous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he thought, if he was famous, it would fix all that. 
Mm. He would be, he would, all his problems would go away. Okay. Well, so. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, based on what we talked about with Kerouac and Pollock and some of these other folks who did become famous. <laughs> that He wasn't in the boat by himself. Yeah, the well, the, yeah, himself. I was going to say, if he had been a better student of history, perhaps he would have realized that that was not going to make his life any better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there were definitely some characters uh, that were part of this. Um, and it all starts to get really interesting. So I'm going to leave it here uh, for the next episode and just say this, that Andy wanted to be part of the scene. Andy wanted to be part of the Island of Misfit Toys. Mm. Um, and he needed those connections from the other emerging artists, but they basically rejected him. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So he kind of started making his own scene. Hey, this reminds me, Todd, uh, my glass is empty, and I'm going to start making a scene. Uh, oh! If you don't well, get us, go, get us more drinks. We'll fix that right away. All right. Bartender! Bartender! All right, All right everyone. See you again soon. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. <laughs> no. Some people say how to fix it or how do you fix it. But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? Yeah. How do we fix it? The Solutions Show, from the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.